0: Matthew chapter 12 this morning. This morning I am starting a two-part message on what is most often called the unpardonable sin. The word unpardonable means unforgivable. And so this is considered the unforgivable sin. This is the one sin God said He is not going to forgive under any circumstances. Before we explain what this unpardonable sin is, let me address what this particular sin is not. And I'm going to mention two uh, most common ideas that people hold to as to what this sin might be. Statement one, it is not the sin unto death. This unpardonable, unforgiven sin is not the sin unto death. The sin unto death is mentioned in 1 John 5, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother, that's someone's Christian brother or sister, Sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he, God, will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is, though, there is a sin leading to death. Most theologians teach that this sin unto death is the final sin that a Christian commits after he has ignored repeated attempts from God to correct him. It is not necessarily a particular sin, such as drunkenness or some immoral sexual act, but it is the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. It is the sin that causes God to actually bring about a premature end to a Christian's life. The person that commits this sin is someone that exists in a state of serious spiritual regression and often rebellion. He is repeatedly not doing what he should do, and so God chastens him. Chasten means to correct or discipline. It is what a good parent does to their child. God is a spiritual parent. He is the ultimate parent, and he chastens and corrects his spiritual children that have continued to sin and act in disobedience to him, and he does that in order to get their attention and convince them to change. The problem is sometimes a Christian has been Chastened and chastened and chastened, and he is so stubborn that he is not responding to God's correction. He just continues to sin until God's patience is, in a sense, exhausted, and then God causes that person to die a premature death so that he can then go to heaven and avoid additional self destructive behavior. So, get this the sin unto death is the sin. That results in a Christian's premature death. But that sin is just as forgivable as are all of his other sins. Because it's not a particular sin. It's just the final sin that exhausts God's patience. So it is not the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. Statement two, and we're going to spend some time on this one. Statement two, it is not suicide. It is a common opinion among people that have not studied the subject from a biblical perspective that suicide could be the unpardonable sin. Part of the reason this opinion is so common is because of a misunderstanding related to the Catholic teaching about suicide. Probably most nominal and uninformed Catholics and probably most Protestants and evangelicals have the idea that Catholicism teaches that suicide is the unpardonable sin. But that's not true. We're not Catholics, but we need to be careful about misrepresenting Catholicism. We need to be careful about misrepresentation, period. Because the Catholic Church does not teach that suicide is the unpardonable sin. Let me explain how this misunderstanding originated. Catholicism teaches that all sins fit into two basic categories. The first grouping are called venial sins. Venial sins. And those venial sins are lesser sins. These are more minor sins. Uh, These are misdemeanors, so to speak. Uh, these sins, in Catholic language, do not, do not remove sanctifying grace from someone's soul. And that is important because according to the Catholicism, sanctifying grace is necessary to be acceptable to God. Catholicism teaches that someone receives sanctifying grace at baptism. That's the reason In Catholicism, children are baptized as infants so that those children can receive this sanctifying grace. And then afterwards, throughout childhood and then adulthood, um, those children, um, as Catholics, attempt to maintain that sanctifying grace through keeping the other sacraments of the church. Venial sins might be uh, accumulating parking tickets, Uh, Cheating on an exam at school, using unacceptable language, or gossiping, or eating too much, or stealing something unexpensive, or, and get this one, getting slightly drunk. Although I'm not sure what slightly drunk is. Catholicism teaches that venial sins can be forgiven someone through receiving communion, or the Eucharist at Mass, although it is strongly recommended that venial sins should also be confessed to a priest. The second category are mortal sins, mortal sins, and those are the most serious sins. These are major sins. These are felonies, if we might label them that, and mortal sins, notice, do do remove sanctifying grace from someone's soul and uh, cause that someone to experience the death of his soul in hell. Understand something, the Bible doesn't distinguish uh, between lesser sins and more serious sins. Uh, There are no biblical categories called venial and mortal sins. That's Catholic tradition. That is not biblical teaching. That being said, according to Catholicism, in order to be classified as a mortal sin, three conditions must be met. Condition one, it must be a grave matter, meaning the sin in question must be a serious matter. Second, it requires full knowledge and complete consent. It requires full knowledge and complete consent to committing that sin. Third, if there is unintentional ignorance, unintentional ignorance, then the sin is reduced in seriousness. So it is no longer considered a mortal sin. So there can be no self-imposed ignorance, such as someone didn't know because he... Just didn't bother to investigate. So those are the three criteria to determine a mortal sin. Mortal sins can be intense anger and hatred, different forms of blasphemy, malice. Missing mass without a justifiable reason is considered a mortal sin. I so wish I could teach that here. I just (laughs) really... If I could just find a verse... I I would do that. Um, Stealing something expensive although I'm not sure what constitutes expensive is a mortal sin. Getting seriously drunk is a mortal sin. Uh, Using artificial birth control is a mortal sin. Murder, abortion, euthanasia, and suicide are all considered mortal sins. Catholicism teaches mortal sins this is an option Mortal sins must, must be confessed to a priest in order to be forgiven. Unless, and there is an exception, unless the person in question that has the mortal sin to confess, the person in question is near death. Meaning he's on his deathbed. And then if there is no priest available, he then is permitted to confess his sins directly to God. Did you think through that? In certain near-death situations, God is then permissible to be substituted for a priest. So God isn't plan A, God is plan B. I've documented all this information from a Catholic apologetic organization in San Diego. So this is not a misrepresentation of Catholicism. If not rectified, Mortal sins can send someone's soul straight to hell. If someone dies in a state of unconfessed mortal sin, then that person is assigned to hell since he has not confessed that sin to a priest and has not received forgiveness uh, prior to his death. The conclusion is that if the suicide meets the conditions of a mortal sin, I mean, if that act meets all the conditions of a mortal sin, then it cannot be forgiven. It cannot be forgiven because the person committing that suicide that constitutes a mortal sin is unable to confess his sin to either a priest or to God because he is dead. Dead people don't confess sin. I might add, suicide is a sin that can be committed only once, it is not a repeatable offense. Since suicide victims aren't able to confess the mortal sin of suicide to a priest because those people are deceased, because of that, people have gotten the idea that the Catholic Church teaches that suicide is the unpardonable sin. And until more recent times, Catholicism's attitude about suicide was so severe it denied burial to suicide victims. But the church has become more understanding of late and most priests do not feel that most suicides meet the criteria of a mortal sin. The excuses are most suicide participants are suffering from severe psychological problems and so do not have full and complete knowledge of what they are doing. Most priests appeal to the exception clause of unintentional ignorance. And if that is the case, then the suicide in question is not considered, according to them and the church, is not considered a mortal sin and the victim goes to purgatory instead of hell. According to church teaching, all people in purgatory ultimately go to heaven. It's just a matter of time. Purgatory is considered a, a period of purification that is supposed to prepare someone for heaven non-Catholics such as ourselves do not believe in the existence of purgatory because it is not taught in Scripture the Bible teaches that suicide is a serious sin but it does not teach that suicide is unpardonable and unforgivable let me explain that notice some definitions homicide and this is unjustifiable homicide, is the murder of someone else. Homicide is the murder of someone else. Most people see the word homicide and immediately you think murder. And that would be wrong. Homicide is defined as one human being causing the death of another human being. Some homicides are considered murder and some homicides aren't manslaughter isn't considered murder self-defense isn't considered murder but unjustifiable homicide is considered murder notice a second definition suicide is the murder of one's self suicide is the murder of one's self. suicide is self-murder now notice don't miss this notice that both suicide An unjustifiable homicide constitute murder. And the basic difference between them is just the person that is murdered. In an unjustifiable homicide, the murder victim is someone else. In suicide, the murder victim is one's self. But notice the sin is the same. Essentially the same. Question, can God forgive unjustifiable homicide answer yes he can God can forgive that act and there are a number of biblical examples to substantiate that Moses committed unjustifiable homicide he murdered an Egyptian man in cold blood and Moses was forgiven David committed homicide he assigned Bathsheba's husband Uriah to the front lines of battle with the specific intent that he would die in battle. So it was premeditated and included malicious forethought so it should be considered murder. And David was forgiven. Paul committed multiple murder. He arrested Christians on false charges, tried them, tortured them, and then had them executed. Paul was forgiven. And as evidence of that forgiveness, God then used him to author half the New Testament. Question can God forgive suicide answer yes he can yes God can and does forgive suicide the logic is this if God forgives unjustified homicide and it is apparent that he does then God can forgive suicide because the sin committed is essentially the same although it is extremely rare it is theoretically possible that a Christian could commit suicide. This potential suicide victim could be suffering from some form of severe mental illness. He could be trapped in a heavily medicated state. Or he could be the victim of manic depression. Uh, It has happened. It happened to the pastor that baptized me. He committed suicide at age 58. He pastored a mega congregation. He was a prolific author um, and committed suicide. If a Christian did commit suicide, then in a legal and judicial sense, he would be forgiven. We have discussed judicial forgiveness before and uh, are scheduled to discuss that subject again. Judicial forgiveness is essential to salvation It is part and parcel to salvation. But if a Christian commits suicide, then he has, because he has received judicial forgiveness, because all of his sins, past, present, and even future sins, were forgiven the moment he received Jesus. That's the essence of judicial forgiveness. That all inclusive forgiveness potentially includes suicide. So the unpardonable sin is not the sin unto death. It is not a suicide, self-murder. Let's set the historical background to this unpardonable, unforgivable sin. Matthew 12, verse 22. Then one was brought to him, meaning brought to Jesus. One was brought to him who was demon-possessed, both blind and mute. Mute means unable to speak. And he healed him So that the blind and mute man both spake and saw. So someone brought to Jesus, some anonymous someone, brought to Jesus a man who was demon-possessed. And that meant a demon actually inhabited him notice the definition demon possession is the state of a demon inside someone exerting direct influence and control over that person and causing a certain derangement of his or her mind and or body that's the essence of demon possession now demon possession is to be distinguished from demon affliction in demonic affliction Notice the demon operates from the outside. In demonic possession, the demon operates from the inside. And therein is the difference. This man was not just afflicted, there wasn't just a demon harassing him. From the outside, no. This man was possessed by a demon. And this demonized condition caused him to be both blind and mute. Meaning this man couldn't see and couldn't speak. Jesus exorcised, not exorcised, exorcised this demon out of this man. Some of us remember the strange movie The Exorcist, which I didn't see. Jesus exorcised, this demon meaning he extracted this demon out from this man and as soon as this demon had been cast out this man could then both see and speak. He had been totally healed and his healing was the direct result of this exorcism. Verse 23 and all the multitudes after seeing this exorcism and the transformation in this man were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? The people that witnessed this exorcism and the healing of this demonic man came to the unanimous consensus that Jesus could be the son of, meaning the descendant of, David. And that was a significant statement, because both the Hebrew Old Testament and the ancient Jewish Talmud consisting of 36 volumes of Jewish learning, both of those documents prophesied that the promised Jewish Messiah would be a direct descendant from David. So in commenting that Jesus could be a descendant from David, these people are suggesting that Jesus might be the promised Messiah. The multitudes interpreted this miraculous exorcism from Jesus as a sign that he was the Messiah. Verse 24. That caused some problems. Now the Pharisees heard it, meaning the Pharisees heard what this this crowd was saying. And they said, This fellow, Jesus, does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, Beelzebub is Satan, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebub is one of Satan's 17 different names mentioned throughout Scripture. Beelzebub was an ancient Philistine name. The Philistines were a polytheistic, pagan, Gentile nation that had a fly god named Beelzebub. This Beelzebub was said to be the lord of the flies meaning that he was in charge of the flies. That has to be a, a very in, enviable position. If I were Lord of the Flies, then I would orchestrate a fly genocide. I hate flies. Since Satan is said to be the Lord of the Demons, notice the verse reads, ruler of the demons, then it is appropriate that he is also called Beelzebub. Beelzebub because he meaning the Lord of the Flies. Let me explain what just happened here. Just after the multitude started to suggest that Jesus could be the promised Messiah, this religious sect of men called the Pharisees argued that no, 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 no. Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. The Pharisees put a big spin on this miracle that had just Transpired and accused Jesus of casting out this demon through the energy of Satan himself. One more time. The Pharisees accused Jesus of exercising this demon out of this man through the energy and enablement of Satan himself. Notice a statement from verse 24. This fellow, Jesus, does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub. This is the ultimate form of comedian Flip Wilson's rationale for wrongdoing. Those, those of us who are old enough to remember, Mr. Wilson became famous for that comedic line, the devil made me do it. Daner Bailey should uh, be in attendance at second service. Daner said he knew Flip Wilson. That being the case, Daner could have been the inspiration behind that line, the devil <laughs> made me do it you think I'll say it second service yes the Pharisees said the devil made Jesus do it these Pharisees were upset that these Jewish people even considered that Jesus could be the Messiah To them, Jesus was a complete fraud. So these jealous men tried to discredit Jesus. Now notice, the Pharisees couldn't discount what Jesus did because there was visible evidence, tangible evidence. It was apparent to all of them that this demonized man that earlier couldn't see and couldn't speak was no longer possessed and he was now able to do both. So since the Pharisees couldn't discount what Jesus did, they tried to discredit him for, what, for how he did it. Since the Pharisees couldn't discount what Jesus did, they tried to discredit for how he did it. This is essential to understanding the nature of this unpardonable, unforgivable sin. So don't miss this. The Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out this demon through the energy and enablement of Satan, also called Beelzebub. Beginning in verse 25, and going through verse 29, Jesus responded to this ridiculous accusation from these Pharisees. Jesus presented three arguments in his rebuttal against this charge, and each argument has two verses attached to it. So, in, in the remainder of our time, we're going to address each argument and see if there aren't some practical lessons in each of these arguments for us. Argument 1. Satan did not enable Jesus to cast out this demon because to do that would be f- for him, for Satan, to fight against himself. And Satan is not going to fight against himself. Satan is stupid, but he's not that stupid. Notice verse 25. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan... He is divided against Himself. How then will His kingdom stand? That is a rhetorical question. Um, The answer is, it won't. If Jesus had utilized satanic power in order to cast out a demon from someone possessed, then in essence, that meant that Satan was fighting against himself. The argument Jesus presented in verses 25 and 26 is that a A kingdom or a nation divided against itself is going to fall. A household divided against itself is going to fall. An organization divided against itself is going to fall. And I might add a congregation divided against itself is going to fall. And that has happened thousands of times. No situation can survive internal dissension and division. And so if Satan's modus operandi is to get rid of his own demons, then he is divided against himself and his satanic kingdom. And if he does that, then ultimately his kingdom cannot stand. Satan understands how essential it is to be united and unified, so he wouldn't want to fight against himself through dividing his forces and casting out his own demons. That's the logic behind the argument that Satan did not enable Jesus to cast out the demon. The logic is based on the premise that united we stand and divided we fall. The basis for this argument is also the reason why as individual congregants we should act together as one. Either we hang together or else we hang separately notice the practical application of this argument the practical application is to create division among ourselves is counterproductive and self-destructive it is counterproductive and self-destructive i have seen i remember as a teenager seeing a congregation polarized into combative groups of people because of a church league softball game I have seen a congregation divide over the selection of the color of new carpet I have been in elder meetings that argued until past midnight and divided over stuff that is of no eternal consequence that hasn't happened here our elders decisions are unanimous and even Satan understands that divisiveness division is self-destructive one secret to success is to be unified Psalm 133 verse 1 behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity the supreme model of being unified is the triune Godhead one God existing in three co-equal persons God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are completely unified as one God. And so what God is, as God, He then expects us to strive to become in a more limited human sense. One example of that is the prayer Jesus prayed as He and His disciples left the upstairs room where together those men had eaten the Passover meal. And where Jesus had instituted communion. Jesus started to walk to the garden where in a matter of hours he would be arrested. He prayed as he walked. That prayer is found in John chapter 17. It is the longest recorded prayer in the entire New Testament. It consists of 26 verses. That prayer basically consists of Jesus praying passionately that Christians would be unified. Listen to just a part of that prayer. Jesus said... John 17, verse 20, I do not pray, I do not pray for these alone. These alone, meaning these disciples beside him, but also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. That is a reference to successive generations of Christians over the centuries that would result from those original disciples teaching as recorded in scripture and that would include us. Jesus actually prayed for us there. Verse 21, that they all, including us, may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Understand that except for the individual human soul, nothing on this earth is more important and of more value to Jesus than his church. He paid the ultimate price for the church's existence, and that was his own sacrificial death. And he wants the church to be protected from the damage created from dissension and division and conflict. Jesus wants his church to be unified. Please understand, though, that unity doesn't mean uniformity. God has assigned us pronounced and prolific differences. I mean just look around the room. God has assigned us different personalities, different physiques, different racial and ethnic origins, different languages, different degrees of intelligence, different habits, different hobbies, different tastes. Different abilities, different talents, and different skills and spiritual gifts. And the differences go on and on and on. And we should not just tolerate those differences in one another, but we should appreciate those differences and even celebrate those differences. Being unified doesn't mean being uniform. It doesn't mean creating a bunch of cookie-cutter Christians. Imagine how boring our existence would be if all of us were exactly the same. It is not difficult to see that diversity is essential to a sane and sensible society. But we cannot let those differences that God has originated, we cannot let those differences divide us. The point is, as Christians, we should be united in this sense we should agree on the essential teachings and tenets of the historic Christian faith and we should share a common biblical worldview on non-essentials though we can just agree to disagree and be agreeable in doing that but understand Satan wants to divide us one of the biggest problems with this increasing wokeness culture is its absolute divisiveness. The president began his administration in his inaugural speech promising to unite this nation. That was meaningless political rhetoric as this wokeness ideology that this administration now endorses and is determined to force down our throats couldn't be more anti-unification. Wokeness people is the big lie. Wokeness is socialist. Wokeness is Marxist. Wokeness is envious and selfish. Wokeness is hateful and malicious. Wokeness is murderous. I got this from uh, the Honorable Janice Rogers-Brown, who was a judge for three decades, who will be in second service. She made me aware of this, and I believe she's more qualified to comment on this than I am. Uh, She contends that wokeness is racist. We are constantly being told about systemic racism. And I agree. Systemic racism does exist. It exists in the wokeness movement. Wokeness is destructive, not constructive. Wokeness is godless. Wokeness is the doctrine of demons. And if it is not categorically rejected, then the end result will be the ruination of this nation. Because Jesus said, every kingdom and nation divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And I have no idea why you're so quiet. Argument number two. Do you agree? I worked on this, changing this to 3 a.m. this morning. You've got to keep me awake, okay? I, I need help, okay? Argument two: if Satan enabled Jesus to cast out this demon, then the same could be said. the same could be said of the Jewish Exorcist. Notice verse 27 and 28. Jesus is still responding, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, meaning Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges verse 28 but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God meaning the Holy Spirit surely the kingdom of God has come upon you you know I have a I have this reputation of terrible jokes and uh, I have one I just couldn't resist Uh, do you know why someone should always pay his exorcist because if he doesn't he could get repossessed. That's what could happen. You know, you have to have a lot of courage to say stuff like that. And uh, Yes, yes. Some of the more enthusiastic Jewish people, men in particular, had started to dabble in exorcism. And those Jewish exorcists were having some significant success at casting out demons. This is the second argument from Jesus. Jesus said, If I am casting out demons through Satan, then it is both possible and probable that these Jewish exorcists are doing the exact same thing. So if you are condemning me for doing this, then you should also be condemning them. That was a smart argument. Because... These Pharisees didn't want to be put into a position that had them accusing their own Jewish brothers of casting out demons through the assistance of Satan. If that happened, then those Jewish exorcists would be upset at them and would be on their case. That's the reason Jesus said in the second half of verse 27, Therefore they, those exorcists, shall be your judges. It would be inconsistent and hypocritical of those Pharisees to accuse Jesus of casting out a demon through Satan and then ignore those Jewish exorcists that were doing the exact same thing. The practical application of that argument is be careful not to judge someone for doing something that we overlook in others or tolerate in ourselves doing the same thing. Be careful not to judge someone for doing something that we overlook in others or tolerate in ourselves doing the exact same thing. This month marks the anniversary of the death of Elvis Presley. In 1970, he requested a visit to the White House to meet President Nixon. He told the president, that he could influence the hippie movement that was prolific at that time. He told him he could influence the hippie movement against the use of drugs that he, Elvis felt, were such a societal problem. He actually requested to be made a federal drug enforcement agent. And he was ultimately given a special made Bureau of Narcotics badge people that's ironic that someone that took such a strong public outspoken stance against drugs and drug usage would himself die a premature death at age 42 from drug abuse after Elvis died through toxicology reports medical examiners found traces of 14 drugs in his body 10 of those were present in significant quantities In 1977, and remember, Elvis didn't survive even a full eight months of 1977. During that time period, though, his physician issued to Elvis more than 10,000 prescriptions of narcotics, amphetamines, and sedatives. I admired and appreciated Elvis's music, and I admired his incredible generosity and some other personal qualities but people do not forget he judged others for what he actually tolerated in himself I read about a woman in an airport that had brought a book to read and a package she had just purchased a package of cookies to eat as she waited for the plane after she had taken her seat in the terminal and gotten engrossed in her book, she noticed that a man just one seat away from her was fumbling to open the package of cookies on the seat between them. She was so shocked that a stranger would open up her package of cookies and start to eat her cookies that she didn't know what to do so she just reached over and took one of the cookies and ate it herself. The man didn't say anything but soon reached over and took another cookie And ate it. This woman wasn't going to let him eat all the cookies. So she took another one. And then he took another one. And the two alternated cookies until they were down to one cookie. The man reached over, broke that last cookie in half, ate the one half, got up and left. This woman was upset. She couldn't believe this man's nerve. But soon the announcement came to board the plane. Once aboard the plane, the woman, she was fumbling around her Still fuming about the man's audacity at eating her cookies, and she reached into her purse for a Kleenex. It then suddenly occurred to her that she should be more careful about passing judgment on someone because inside her purse was her still unopened package of cookies. She had literally eaten the man's cookies. <laughs> And of course, none of us would ever do anything like that. <laughs> Argument three. Argument three. It would be impossible for someone to cast out a demon unless he was first able to get control of his master, Satan. It would be literally impossible for someone to cast out a demon unless he was first able to control the demon's master, Satan. Verse 29. <coughs> Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, that means stealing blind, unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? In order to illustrate this third argument, Jesus uses the example of spoiling a strong man's house. If someone intended to rob a strong man's house and the owner was at home, then he's not going to be able to confiscate anything until he first gets control of that strong man. He needs to first tie him up and stick him in a closet somewhere before he can then proceed to rip him off. In order to get to the goodies, the thief has to go through the man of the house. And in some cases, the man of the house might be similar to this picture. (laughs) Notice the three Dobermans on the doorstep the caption reads the key is under the mat just let yourself in so the fact Jesus has cast out a demon presupposes presupposes he has first already subdued this demons master Satan or else how could he be able to cast out one of his demons in order to get to a demon someone has to first go through Satan and if Jesus (laughs) has gotten control of Satan so he could cast out this demon then it is apparent he is using a power greater than Satan in casting out that demon and we know Jesus was using a power greater than Satan because verse 28 emphatically stated that Jesus utilized the Holy Spirit to do this exorcism and not Beelzebub the practical application The security of a situation is contingent on the status of the head of that situation. That situation could be a household, a multi-billion dollar corporation, a congregation, or even a nation. That's the reason congregations should pray that God would protect their pastors. The pastor is part of the human governing head of the church affects each other member of the congregation. If Satan can get to me and entice me to commit a sin that disqualifies me then he in essence has negatively affected each member of this congregation at minimum that trickle down effect creates immediate and mass disillusionment and people drop off. So pray that never happens. Unless there are other established safeguards such as term limits, the survival of an organization is contingent on the status of the one that is leading and heading up that organization. Satan understands that. And this is the reason he focuses most of his attention and energies on the people at the top of the organizational chart. In summation, these three arguments Jesus used to... Rebuttal these charges from the Pharisees reveal his absolute genius at using logic. His arguments are indefensible. In a public courtroom, Jesus would have been the most skillful and articulate attorney arguing for a verdict from the jury. On a panel discussion, Jesus would have been the most masterful debater in defending a particular position. Personally, I would love to see Jesus testify before Congress. I would pay money to see that actually. In using these three sensible and completely logical arguments, Jesus has just demonstrated to these Pharisees how that Satan, Beelzebub, did not in any sense assist him in casting out this demon. In the second part of this message, Jesus is going to explain exactly how. He was able to exercise this demon. And from that explanation, we are going to create a definition of this unpardonable, unforgivable sin. That's next time. And we are also going to answer the most important question can this unpardonable, unforgivable sin still be committed today? But before I conclude this message, let me read verse 30. Verse 30, where Jesus said to these same Pharisees, He who is not with me, meaning Jesus, is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. That means there is no neutral position connected to Jesus Christ. Someone is either for him, or else someone is against him. It's one or the other, but it's not possible to straddle the spiritual fence in relation to Jesus. I've had the privilege over four and a half decades of praying with hundreds and hundreds of people to receive Jesus. But just once, I did something very different. I felt this compulsion and urge to do this Haven't done it since. I did something very different to cause someone to think through and reevaluate his decision more carefully. I shared the entire gospel. And then I invited this person to sign on the dotted line for Jesus. I said, "Uh, sir, would you pray with me and invite Jesus into your life? He said, I just can't do that. I do want Jesus to be a part of my life at some point, but right now I I just can't bring myself to say yes. I said, I understand and I respect that. But since you can't tell Jesus that you want Him could you pray with me and tell Jesus that you don't want Him? Since you can't Pray and tell Jesus that you receive him. Could you then pray with me and tell Jesus that you reject him? He was offended and said, are you serious? No, I can't do that. I said, you don't have to because you just did. The moment you refused to say yes to Jesus, essentially you said no to Jesus because Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. That, people, is the seriousness of this decision. So the question is, what have you done with Jesus? Whose side are you on? Are you for Him? Or are you against Him? It's one or the other. There is no other position. Would you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, um, I don't know anyone's heart. I have no means of doing that, but you do. And if there's anyone here, who hasn't said yes to Jesus, help them to understand that in all that procrastination and that reluctance to say yes, they are essentially saying no. Jesus said you're either with me or against me. And I pray that everyone here would ultimately say no if they haven't already said no, would ultimately ultimately say yes if they haven't already, because I don't want anyone here to miss heaven. I mean, if they miss our church, that's okay. If they miss me, they haven't missed that much. But I don't want anyone here to miss eternal life. And so, Father, if there's someone here who's struggling with this decision, they're not certain about their eternal future, they're not certain about their relationship with Jesus, I pray they'll come to me after this service and say, Pastor, can we set up an appointment? Can we talk? I really want what you said Jesus has for me. So bless this message. Help us to learn from it and to incorporate these uh, principles and practical applications we've mentioned. And I really pray it will make a difference in each of us and in our congregation. And I thank you. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.